Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 254 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Well, back on the podcast today, we've got Hayden Shaw, longtime listeners. You're going to remember Hayden from a previous episode where we talked about generational differences, and it was so um, popular, we brought him back to drill down even more. And so we're going to talk about tension at work, like what helps Gen Z, millennials, Gen X, and boomers get along. Because guess what? That's your workforce. That's your team. And Hayden's got some amazing insights on that. So I think you're going to love today. And hey, I'm really excited about something that I'm doing in May. I'm going to be in Dallas at the Push Pay Summit. And I sat down with Troy Pollack, one of the vice presidents at Push Pay, and asked him about what we could expect at the Push Pay Summit. So I'm speaking with Patrick Lencioni, Bobby Grunwald, uh, Cheryl Batchelder, and many others. Anyway, here's my conversation with Troy. In a single word, I would describe Summit as tactical, Carrie. Mm. You know, there's a plethora of conferences out there in the church space, right? And why is this technology software company from Seattle, Washington, putting on church conference? It's a great yeah, yeah, question. Good question. It's because we saw an opportunity to bring the tactical, practical application to the church. And that's the lane that we're running in. So it's not to get people there and inspire them. We don't even have worship. We don't have that part. We just roll the sleeves up and get to the nuts and bolts of how to grow your organization, how to scale it, how to put in systems and processes, how to hire, <laughs> consequently, yeah. how to fire. Uh, what does your pipeline look like? Where are you recruiting? What is opening new locations looking like? So you're not going to leave super inspired on a high. You're going to actually leave equipped to go back to your place of organization and implement some tools on Monday morning that's going to strengthen your organization. So that summit is happening May 22nd, May 23rd in Dallas, Texas. I would love for you to join us. It's going to be super practical. And right now the price is listed at $159 for early bird pricing through the end of the month. But get this, because you listen to this podcast, when you're checking out, use the coupon code CAREYN, C-A-R-E-Y-N, at registration you will bring the cost down to $89 per person. That's a huge <laughs> discount. It's almost half price just because you're listening to this show. So head on over to pushpay.com forward slash summit to learn more and to register. Use the coupon code CAREYN, C-A-R-E-Y-N, and join me in Dallas, Texas, May 22nd and May 23rd. Hey, you ever struggle with time management and productivity? I know so many leaders I talk to do. And here's, here's the problem. Everyone's overwhelmed. How do you beat overwhelm? Well, that is what the High Impact Leader course is all about. And if you haven't yet checked out what thousands of other leaders have discovered, what are you waiting for? Head on over to thehighimpactleader.com. And here's my question for you. What would it be like, what would you feel like if you got a thousand productive hours back this year? That's what so many leaders have discovered. It's like, wow, if I get like a couple hours a day back, like think about three hours a day, you know what that adds up to in productivity? Over a thousand hours in the course of a year. Let's say you get three hours a week back, okay? Low return on investment, three hours a week. You know what that adds up to? A month of vacation, 
a month of productivity, a month of you working on your book, whatever that is. This is the system that I have used for the last 13 years when I bounce back from burnout. I would love to show you how to organize your time, your energy, and your priorities to get them working in your favor. So check out thehighimpactleader.com. It's open right now. I would love to welcome you in that on-demand course. And in the meantime, well, let's get into uh, my conversation with Hayden Shaw. He's a leading business expert, consultant on generational issues in the workplace. He's been featured in all the major magazines, done TED Talks. He's an author, speaker, and you're going to love, I think, my conversation with Hayden Shaw. Well, Hayden Shaw, welcome back to the podcast. Good to have you back, man. It's been a while. Hey, thanks for having me back. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was episode 69 and leaders just loved it. So I thought we would catch up and talk about everything that's changed. It was it was one of the most downloaded episodes that year. Um, so that's great to hear. You have spent a lot of time focusing on differences and similarities in generations, which seems to me to be a subject like it's impossible to exhaust. I mean, we've tackled that with you. I've tackled it with a few other people that I've interviewed. And every time we go there, people are like, yep, totally interested. Partly because, you know, parents are trying to relate to their kids and they're like, what the heck? And then in the workplace in particular, which we're going to look at, you got aging baby boomers who are like, what is wrong with the millennials with Gen Z? Gen Z and the millennials going, we're different. And, you know, those forgotten people like me, the Gen Xers in the middle there going, hey, 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 anybody paying attention? Answer, no. How did the generation gaps tend to show up just to get really specific to people's situation in a lot of workplaces? Can you just walk us through that where where you would see that? You bet. Let me give you three examples of what sure. I've seen in just the last couple of months. The first one is millennials are tired of the M word. Ah, uh, that's yeah. the first one. So if you all, if you ask almost any parent, they'll be like, oh, yeah, my kid hates the word millennial. And millennials are trying to distance themselves from millennial because so much negative stuff has been bundled in with it. And so I even did a, I posted a series on LinkedIn called is millennial the new M word. And I got quite a number of people paying attention to it because for many people, it really is. And I think that's unfair because, you know, it's going to be the label that the the millennials get stuck with. And I think it's probably something millennials are going to have to live into and then live out of. And so that's a worthwhile conversation right there, because many of us people who are I'm half boomer, half Xer. So I'm right on that cusp. Many of us who are older, we get we throw that word around a lot and often don't realize that some people are like, no, seriously, I've spent my entire career trying not to be a millennial. Hmm. Carrie, my favorite one is a woman who said to me, this is so true. I'm 30, which is just squarely in the millennials. My husband is 31. He said to me, oh, I'm not a millennial. I took a Facebook survey that said I'm Gen X. And she said to him, "If you, she's in human resources, if you take a Facebook survey to try to prove you're not a millennial, you are the definition of professional millennial. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. I brought to the second situation where I see the gap come up is um, older generations who say just what you did. I don't, I don't know what to do to speak to them. To mo- I, don't, I don't know what to say because I say the wrong thing. I can tell from their face. They don't really get yeah. my face, but I can tell from their face I said the wrong thing. I don't know how to motivate them. And our turnover is way too high with them. And so mm. that's why I created a series of videos called Cut Your Generational Turnover in Half. 
because you can't cut all your turnover in half, but there's some things you can do to cut generational turnover in half pretty quickly. Yeah. And then last of all, I was working at what I see in churches, because I know a lot of the folks who listen to you are not just you know, business leaders and uh, nonprofit leaders, but they're also people who work in ministry and churches. And so when I when I work with them with the second book, the, the Generational IQ content, um, what'll happen is you'll end up with a staff with a number of people under 30, and then you'll end up with a staff often with some Xers and then usually a couple of us boomers, and the staff, this is how the staff conversation goes. You know, this is not a millennial church. We want to be fresh and open to millennials, but millennials don't pay the bills. Mm-hmm. And then you have the millennial staff saying, they hired me telling me they wanted me to give them advice on how to be more millennial relevant. And everything I say, they tell me why it won't work. And so that's the single biggest generation gap I see on on church staffs, especially large enough church staffs that they, you know, of four to five to more staff people is, um, you know, they keep asking, what do I do with the older generation? And the older generation asks, what do we do with the younger generation so that they can work with all these generations, do ministry with all these generations and and stop taking every opportunity to tell us what we would have to do to be more millennial? Hmm. You know, it, it's it's fascinating. And anybody who um, is a regular listener or reader would know that uh, I love millennials. I love Gen Z. That's really my team. I mean, I've worked with right. people 15 to 30 years younger than me now for a while. It's hard to believe there are people in the workplace who are now three decades younger than me. But that's actually true for those of us who are, I'm at the very top of Gen X. So, yeah, you know, I... Okay, what's your birth year? Now, I haven't asked you that. Now I got to know. Uh, 65. I was born in March of 65. I'm just slightly older. I'm 63. So you are, you're right at the end of that. Yep. Right at the end of that cusp, but the very, truly the beginning of X. Yeah. The dates yeah. float a little bit, but most would say that's the Gen X, beginning of Gen X is my year. You bet. That's what yep. I say. Yeah. So, so for me, you know, it's, it's been really fascinating to me to get along with them, but have so many of my friends who are in their fifties or back in the day in their forties who are like, Oh, I just can't believe it. Right. And uh, now what's, what's, what's strange speaking of categories is (laughs) you talk to a lot of older leaders and the average pastor is 56 years old these days. So think about that. I'm still young, which is weird. Anyway, um, but but they look at millennials as young people. Are they not almost 40? <laughs> okay, my son's 28. And yeah. he said to me, and he's a worship pastor in a church of about 3,000. And great place, great fit. Um, and he said this, he goes, you know, are you people still talking about millennials? Yeah. I'm like, what do you mean by you people? Well, you know, you people, your age, your customers. I said, well, yes, this is why you'll get Christmas presents this year because people still don't know what to do with millennials. He goes, I'm 28. I got a kid and a mortgage. I got a kid in a house um, is what he said. I, why are you still talking about millennials? And um, it's interesting because we forget how old they are and how old our clothes are. I, I still have, and I, I may, maybe I, should ask you to edit this, but I still have Zubaz. <laughs> that tells you how 90s I still am. I still have okay, Zubaz. Okay, I don't remember that, but good for you, yeah, man. Yeah, they're the weightlifting pants that any Napoleon Dynamite fans will know are what the karate instructor would wear in red, white, and blue. They are the big, famous, bright, outlandish um, weightlifting pants. And um, I still keep them because I'm too cheap to throw things out. And so uh, the point <laughs> of it is, 
my kids had to tell me, uh, you cannot wear those outside to get the mail anymore. I don't, what you do inside the privacy of your own home is up to you, but you cannot go outside because you're humiliating. And I didn't realize, you know, that Zubaz had gone that badly out of style. And the same thing happens with generations. Now that they're 38, we turn around and go, wait, aren't they the 20-somethings? Nope, haven't right. been 20-somethings for a, almost a decade. And so suddenly, we feel like Dick Clark getting 30 years older instantly, as the old cartoons would say, is forever young. And then the joke would be he'd age instantly. And suddenly, all of us feel instantly older because we realize, like you said, I'm a couple of decades older than my staff. Yeah. And, you know, there's differences. Like, you can be mentally young, regardless of your age, or you could be a... Uh you know, a creaking 40-year-old too. That happens. <laughs> it, it does. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. So I want to do a generational rundown for a moment. And I totally get the whole millennial thing too, that people don't like the labels, right? So I get that. But reality is the time in which you were born and raised impacts your attitude toward culture, toward work. And I mean, even your cultural cues, I write about that and didn't see it coming in the section on irrelevance, where, you know, you, you just, all your movie references are from the yeah, 90s I didn't like or the that 80s. section of your book as much as I liked others, Gary. <laughs> I just have to say, you gave me an advanced copy and I didn't like that chapter as much. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. You know, there's a lot of people, we almost cut that one out. And um, I've heard from so many people who are like, thank you for leaving that in. Thank you for leaving that in. It really hit them between the eyes. And that's been something I really work on as somebody, because when I was 25 years old, you know, my story is I would look around in the church and see people who were 45, 50, 55. And I'm like, you have no idea. Like, you have no clue what's going on. Like, you just, you don't get it. And so I'm trying very hard to not be that leader who doesn't get it. You know what I mean? So which, which explains my interest in this subject, which seems to be insatiable. But Gen yeah. X, thumbnail version. What are some of the characteristics you see? And I mean, this is what you do for a living, right? With Franklin Covey right. and with your own company. I mean, this is this is what you speak to large companies. This is probably eighty percent of eighty percent of what I do. Yeah. So so Gen X, or sorry, not Gen X, but let's start with boomers because they're still. Okay, in the well, let me give you the ages. Let me run down yeah, all yeah, the yeah. ages. Okay, and great then, idea. And I'm doing that. I'm looking at the book. I put it on the back cover of the book, so I'd always remember the exact ages. How that for a old man cheat? So traditionalist. Um, not all organizations have them, but certainly if you're listening from healthcare or um, small business or uh, uh, um, religious organizations, traditionalists born before 45. And then it was pretty easy to tell the baby boom because the live births went over 3 million. Kind of Johnny hmm. came marching home and made an honest woman of her. And so for a year, you know, millions of men came home um, in a year period of time. And boom, there was a certainly a surge of baby boomers. And then they ended in 64. Um, 65 was a Gen X. Um, I cut off the millennials at 80. Pew Research Center just declared about eight months ago that they're making 96 the cutoff of X and the beginning of the millennials. It's kind of a technical thing. And Wait, since you're into so the, the Gen X goes all the way to 96? The um, I thought some um, millennials yeah. started in 77. I'm 96. 80. I'm sorry. They made the millennials 76. Thank you. Yep. Yeah. Oh, you're welcome. Okay, that I makes sense. I'm like 96. Coffee. I got like a kid. Who yeah, 90, no, 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 no. Yeah, sorry about that. 76. I make them, Gallup makes them 80. Okay, but thereabouts, right? So late 70s, circa to 1980 is when the millennials start and Gen X stops. Uh, I got, got a buddy. 
who uh, was born, I think, in 75. And apparently that was the lowest birth rate of like the last 50 years. He says well, there's none of us. Here's what's, here's what's interesting about this. Horror tells us what we're scared of. Horror films as a okay, society. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can map it. So traditionalists, you know, after the war, boomers were scared of the big bomb. We had to do, I'm still old enough to remember doing um, atomic bomb drills in grade school. Wow. I was kind of like the last year they did it. Yeah. And so we had Godzilla, we had Mothra, we had these big monsters that would land and scare a lot of people in Japan. And then we ended up with Xers and the birth rate was so low with Xers, they're so, so much smaller of a generation. And the sociological explanation for why Xers are smaller is their parents didn't want them. And mm -hmm. um, and the Thank movies you. were about the devil baby child. So we had a whole genre <laughs> of the evil baby child, literally starting with Rosemary's baby when yeah, Liveburst right. go under three million and going all the way to Children of the Corn when Liveburst <laughs> were over three million and Children of the Corn was one of the few Stephen King flops. Huh. Didn't do well because we then had Raising Arizona, Three Men and a Baby, and Baby Boom, which were low-budget breakout films because we now had Baby on Board signs in the back of windows of right. minivans and cars. And we'd gone from children will eat your life because that's what traditionalist mothers taught their boomer daughters. Don't do what I did. Don't have three kids and a mortgage by 24. You need mm. to give yourself some time to finish school and figure out what you want and have some fun and then have kids. Because children will eat your life. Wow. I've never heard this. This is fascinating to me. Just one more on that. Because it's part of the reason why Xers are a bit skeptical. And that and the doubling of the divorce rate from like 15% yes. to 30% when Xers were being born. And not having the social structures in uh, either Canada or the U.S. for, you know, latchkey kids. Mm -hmm. Your parent ties a key around your neck and puts it on a string. What would happen if there was a third grader with their key on a on a shoelace around their neck walking home today in, uh, you know, in, let's just say Toronto, there mm -hmm. would be like four people driving their minivan a mile an hour asking the kid where they're going and where their parent is and the police would be there in seconds, which it just wouldn't happen because we have social support now for people, for single parents that just didn't exist back then. And so it was a much scarier, a little more cynical time with that. And um United States does this survey around what makes people happy. Yeah. Every year. And one of the beautiful things was every year comes out faith and then marriage and then children. One year, kind of at the pit of that, when births were the lowest, when Xers were being born, people put their car above their kids. For one year, the car replaced wow. children. And it just showed how low uh, children you know, children had come in the scale. And then Disney is rebounding again from the black hole into world domination, you know, Frozen. Mm. Most of us just have to let it go when it comes to our money because Frozen <laughs> dominates everything. And uh, it came because children are now marvelous and miracles and children, instead of consuming your life, they transform your life. You workaholic Christmas movie type who didn't understand the importance of family and kids. And now right. children are transformative, Carrie. Isn't oh, so? So children were glorified again, and our horror switched to what in the eighties? Uh, and now it is zombies, because zombies oh, yeah. equal terrorists. zombies equal what? Terrorists. We're scared yeah. of we're not scared of the big bomb anymore. We're scared that we'll be in a grocery store, and something will happen. Just like zombies, we're buying yogurt, and we turn around, and the person who's ahead of us 
isn't a isn't a human. It's a zombie. And they think of us as yogurt. That's, that's really, really good. Okay, so millennials circa 80, late 70s to 1980. When do you cut them off and we move into Gen Z? You bet. I cut them off in, um, you know, I place them right around 18 right now. So I place mm-hmm. them going into university as opposed to Pew, which makes them just a little earlier. Yeah, okay. That. So people debate on when Gen Z is. We're so right now. Circa 2000, yeah. right? They're about, give or take a year, circa 2000. Okay, yep, that's I'm a good idea. I'm 80 to 2000. Okay. Um, and characteristics, attitudes, mindsets of the boomers, just the thumbnail version. Cause I think we all have the stereotype, but like, you know, tell us, tell us what we may not realize. Research shows that baby boomers are not big fans of authority. Mm. I know that's a big surprise. Baby boomers had a transformative shift from survival to significance. So the me yes. generation got thrown around, the microwave generation got thrown around as a pejorative. But actually what happened at a very deep level was not sex, drugs, and rock and roll. What happened at the value shift level was baby boomers didn't have to worry about eating. And they didn't have to worry about polio and influenza, which means Woodstock was possible because you could be around large groups of dirty people Hmm. um, without worrying about dying or being crippled um, due to the miracles of modern medicine. The, uh, so penicillin made Woodstock possible at so many different levels. That is fascinating, you know, and you look at that. And I mean, I watch lots of uh, documentaries on Netflix about different eras and generations. And the 60s amazes me at how self-expression really and, and, and self-determination really governed that decade from experimenting with drugs and love to turning convention on its norm, even to musical innovation. You listen to records cut in 1955, records cut in 1965, and records cut in 1970, and how the music changed over those windows. And it is, it's, it's an, it was a revolution. Very much was. The baby boomers had the mass to popularize all of those innovations that the traditionalists brought us. So yeah. for example, Bob Dylan's a traditionalist. Oh, wow. Yeah, you don't think of it that way, but that's true. But the boomers had the mask. Matter of fact, I was at, I was at um, uh, NASA, Goddard. Yeah. And in a Q&A time, somebody said, so what's the most rebellious generation? And I said, traditionalists. The vast majority of them were not rebellious, but all the major ideas in philosophy, in social innovation, um, the beatniks. Oh, yeah. Sartre, Jack Kerouac and On the yeah. Road. All of that, all the ideas came out of um, the traditionalists and matter of fact, of the 100 best books of the year, remember in the Chain of yeah. Millennial, there was 100. There were only four, only six books written by boomers in the 100 best books of the century because the ideas were driven by this revolutionary generation. Now, it was the urban centers and the, and the university centers where that got germinated. And like an underground stream, it began to surge into the greater life when the boomers soaked it all up. Hmm. That, but the, that, that's but the really interesting. Were, the hippie clothes were all traditionalist innovations. Right. And then a lot of those hippies ended up being in the C-suite 15, 20 years later. True. One of my very favorite posters is Woodstock 20-year reunion where all these people are sitting around at a cocktail party in suits and cocktail gowns holding drinks, discussing their best Woodstock experience. Yes. <laughs> how did that... How, okay, okay, here's one of the arguments you hear, and we're going to get into different generational characteristics but some people say just wait till the younger millennials exactly what you said about your son 
grow up, get married, have a kid, have a house. Um, you know, they're commuting to work now. And really the generational differences pivot on life circumstances as much as anything. What do you think of that? That's what I'm working on for the next book. Ah, there you go. As a matter of fact, the TED Talk I did, why half of what you heard about millennials is wrong, is based on that, half of the things that people attribute to millennials is actually a function of the new life stage of emerging adulthood between 18 and 28. And that's going to be with us like the poor. It will always be with us because it's a life stage regardless of the age cohort group or the grouping you are in where your characteristics are shaped by certain life events. Um, the life stage you go through will have similar characteristics apart from the generational characteristics. Uh, there'll yeah. be two functions. And organizations need to know them both, or they end up getting either one wrong and being more irritating with generations than they need to be. Well, I mean, I remember as a 20-something Gen Xer when Douglas Copeland started writing and became sort of the voice of our generation for Those a few Canadians. years. Those, Those Canadian Canadians, writers. I know, Vancouverite. But he, um, I think he's from Vancouver. Anyway, uh, you know, what was the book called? I'm blanking on the title. Was it Life Tales After God? Generation X. Oh, he wrote that. And then he wrote another book about God too, which was really right, interesting. Right, came after that, yeah. Uh-huh. And, you know, it was sort of that dropout. We're not going to be like the boomers. And, you know, fast forward a decade and all the Gen Xers are in a C-suite or starting companies or, you know, doing all the things we said we never would. So, oh, that, that'll be interesting to pursue. Um, what were what some characteristics? You, you, yeah. can't, you simply cannot escape life stage. Right. You can't escape life stage. And because we have two new ones, some of the most important innovations in history. We live 30 years longer. You know, I, I love to yeah. ask audiences what mortality was in Canada and the U.S. in 1900. And they all guess like, you know, 55 and it was 48. That was the average. 48. Mortality. Wow. Yeah. Now, figure in child mortality, infant mortality, sure. and it, it goes up by a couple of there years. There is that stat that it what, you live to 50, you're probably going to live to 80 kind of thing, or, or was that true even then? Yeah. Today, the average, today it's almost 79. Hmm. And so we added 30 years to the human lifespan. That's the most that there's been since Methuselah. And so um, what that means is uh, the, the book of a human life, the life cycle of a human being, has two more chapters, two more stages in it. Yes. And the stage before early adulthood, now called emerging adulthood, and the stage that, that, that um, um, passages, Gail Sheehy called second adulthood, after you retire, but before you're infirm, hmm. those two new chapters in the book are all about freedom and choices and changes. And um, most organizations are really good at motivating people and at keeping people loyal businesses, churches, nonprofits with volunteers. They're really good with people who are in the nesting stage when you got kids because you can't go anywhere anyway. The amount of kit you have to pack up to take a child um, out to dinner is so overwhelming. When you get two of them, you just get carry out or Uber Eats and call yeah, it yeah. a day. Yeah. And so, you know, for many people, um, the ministers will relate to this. The, 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 the nesting stage people are the ones that show up every week because they can't go anywhere. Once um, it, the people who have those new life stages have a huge amount of freedom, and organizations of all stripes, religious or business, have no idea what to do with the new life stages. That these two new chapters in the book, on both ends of our working lives, that are are characterized by freedom. 
That is such a good insight because you're right. Everyone talks about delayed adolescence or emerging adulthood. And you're between 18 and 21, maybe you're in college, trade school, university, that kind of thing. But then you hit about a decade these days before you really settle down. And even if you're married, your your life is is marked by mobility. And then, you know, people are working a little bit longer and later, but you, you hit your 50s, you hit my stage, and there's more freedom than you ever enjoyed when, you know, you're in your 30s or 40s because your kids are gone and you've maybe particularly if you're a senior leader, you have more control, right? Or if you do your own thing, you have far more control. And now we've got the rise. We talked to Brian and Shannon Miles on this podcast of virtual workplaces. And all of a sudden, you're location independent almost. Um, all of that is redefining things. Yeah, it and is. As, I, always, I always joke that, um, you know, your kids are early adults when they pay their part of the family plan of the cell phone. Um, it used to be it's not an empty nest to your kids get their stuff out of the basement. It's not an empty nest to your kids pay their own cell phone plan. It's true. It's true. You're right. And so people who are older now have the freedom to say, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. I remember the last college check, college payment that I made a year ago, March. And my wife looked at her and said, what are we going to do for the rest of our life now? that um, we now have freedom and choices that we didn't have before with a fairly large chunk of money that um, we gave to uh, some wonderfully religious colleges. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's funny. Uh, our, just literally in the last few months while we're recording this, uh, we've got two kids off the payroll. And it's very... And, and this is you know something I want for them, not just something I want from them. I want them to fall down, pick themselves up, you know, skin their knees, that kind of thing. It's like, welcome to life. I think that's really important. But it does open up. I just thought we'd be old and probably sitting in a nursing home on the front porch by the time that happened. I wasn't very good at math. And then you realize, I feel better than I did when I was 35. And I feel like there's a two to three decade fuse, God willing, that that is going to take a long time to burn down. Well, sir, two things. The research shows that after 50, People are four, per, are, are four I, I get, I'm, I can't remember the number. I get it mixed up. Four or 6% happier. Really? I'd say and that's it's a true. life stage thing because one, we don't care anymore. I mean, how many older people <laughs> do you know who say things because they're like, yeah, kill me. I don't care. Shoot me. Exactly. Lock me up. Whatever. I say what I think. Yeah. And uh, so part of it is, you know, uh, Anne Lamont, you know, Anne Lamont, yeah. the writer, she said, once I hit 50, instead of fighting my legs, I named them because no matter how much I exercised or diet, my, she said, this way, my thighs still jiggled. And so I called them my ladies. I say, ladies, let's go for a walk. I acknowledge <laughs> my jiggling instead of hiding it and fighting it. That pretty much captures what most people do at 50. And so, you know, my 28-year-old son, he has to, you know, he has to fit into an organization. A 58-year-old can go, yeah, whatever, shoot me. Right. I don't sometimes, care. sometimes that's true. Sometimes it's not. But you know, there's there's some people who who are are sort of chained to whatever they're doing until Fair that enough. magic number hits. But you're right. I think a lot of listeners, when you look at who listens to podcasts, what you have described describes the majority of listeners to podcasts. That you are there, or you will end up there. It tends to be a more. It just this is just the way it is. I'm not saying this way it should be more affluent, more mobile. Uh, better educated listen to podcasts than than those who don't. So I think you've described a lot of listeners, a lot of leaders listening. 
So Gen X, uh, rebels, sort of, right? And redefining every generation. What about uh, my group, almost your group, Gen X? Any any key characteristics about how we operate? I already mentioned they tend to be a bit cynical, maybe. Um, they're definitely parodied in their form of humor. Ah. So, um, you know, they... they Ted Brokaw wrote that book, The Greatest Generation, about the traditionalists. An extra came along, his name I don't remember, but it was called um, How Generation X um, Saved the World from Sucking. And it was basically all you boomer and traditionalist art and music and television was so boring until we came along and made it fun. And so the idea of that Bart Simpson can be one of the longest running television shows truly yeah. captures Generation X. And um, people still watch Friends. I mean, Friends is still one of the most popular. You know, Netflix has had to go renew Friends because people watch it too much and burn through their contract. So they fascinating back on. And you you could take Friends. You could take a box set of Friends off on your taxes as research into X because it so perfectly captures what the what the research shows. They they um, they will move for families. So what's so interesting is. Because many of them experience families that didn't stay together, just like the show Friends, the only real characters are the friends. The parents are all caricatures. The only boomer who wasn't a caricature was Tom Selleck, and that's because they almost married Monica. Right. And so in the world of Friends, the friends are the real people. Everybody else is a cartoon. And for many Xers, they will relocate not to be closer to their family, but to be closer to their friends from college or high school. Hmm. Okay, so that's Gen X. Anything about us in the workplace? Yeah, you bet. Gen X in the workplace, they are not patient people. Oh, it's not just me. No, it is not. They like to get to the point. They like short emails. They like, um, they like shorter conversations. Ironically, Roper discovered in a survey, they like meetings more than any other generation, which goes against common wisdom. Huh. Only by a percentage point, but Xers, believe that there are some tasks that can only get done in meetings. What they think, though, is that most meetings are over, overdone, and you should use them only to do things that can't be done on a SharePoint site or on Google Docs, and um, mm. get in, get out, get it over with. And, or as one exer said to me, in most meetings, I want to take the stylus from my Note 8 and jam it through my eye. <laughs> I uh, I am resonating with that. So, what about uh, millennials? Millennials are good peeps. Yeah. Um, it's so funny. I was talking to a good Canadian, Donald Tapscott, who is famous for his generational research. He wrote "Growing Up Digital" and then came along 15 years later after a five million dollar project a bunch of big companies put together to see where the millennials were at. And he did "Grown Up Digital" and just great hmm. stuff. Great researcher, good thought leader. And he and I were chatting after he spoke at McDonald's. And, and uh, I said, I said, yeah, you're a little optimistic in your book. He goes, I said, you ought to check out Christian Smith. He's one of the most respected researchers on the uh, philosophical and, and spiritual life of generations. But he's not nearly as optimistic as you. And Tapscott mm. said, is he an Xer? I uh. said, yes, he is. He goes, it's funny. Boomer researchers tend to see their kids as fulfilling what they didn't in the age of Aquarius. Kind of, they'll get Woodstock right. And Xers are like, seriously, their armpits smell, you boomers and your grandkids. I rolled my eyes at the whole Woodstock thing. I remember as a young adult, I'm like, are you kidding me? What's wrong with you guys? I remember we had this, this prof who was in my undergrad 
who was a, a literally, I'm not making this up and this will bother a lot of people, but he was a Vietnam uh, draft dodger. And I remember this was the era of Reagan. And I mean, I'm a Canadian, so I'm not voting in U.S. politics or anything, right. but it's a school in Toronto. And he comes into class one day and he goes, what's wrong with all you people? You have, you know, you wear button down shirts, you sit up straight, you take notes, you want to be successful in, in life. And like, why aren't you rebelling or protesting? And we're like, shut up and give us the notes. Like that literally, that was a conversation that happened in class. Makes complete sense to me. Now, the irony is the Xers actually went more traditional politically. Yeah, yeah, that explains the 80s, right? Yeah, so they, they lurched politically. Um, the research shows, you know, there's this old Winston, it's attributed to Winston Churchill, he didn't say it, but if a man is not a liberal in his 20s, he has no heart, and if he's not a conservative in his 40s, he has no mind. Yeah. That's actually not how stuff rolls. And uh, um, we tend to lean whichever way is the opposite of a bad president in our childhood. So if you look oh. at who, you know, you, you look at Canadian politics and you go, yeah, not so good. Everybody who grew up in their teenage years, college years under that leader ends up being go, lurching five to 10 percentage points more liberal or conservative, the opposite direction. You're right. The senior Trudeau predicts Mulroney in the 80s. My friend, that's exactly what happens. And so the Xers, you know, predicts Reagan. Reagan was considered a strong president. George W. was not. And so we see those shifts here and we see those shifts in the United States. Now, overall, all generations are more liberal on social issues by significant percents. But when it comes to economic and other things, um, we basically stay where we were in high school for the rest of our lives and swing five percentage points depending on the economy. <laughs> Culture really shapes us. That's what I'm hearing. It really does. And that has huge implications for any organization. Well, for because, like theology. Uh, that has yeah. huge implications for any organization and what we do at work. Um, you know, uh, what, we, what we ask people to do, the expectations we have. There's far more single generation Xers, 30% of generation X women and 33% uh, of generation X men and 40% of generation X women never had children. Hmm. Now, it's a big generation. There's a lot of, they had a lot of kids. They had the second half of the millennials, which was larger than the boomers, first half of the millennials, ironically, although so many Xers did not have kids. It was either none, because I can't give them the time and money necessary to be an outstanding parent, or let's have five. Okay, yeah. So that was happening with Gen X. What about millennials? Oh, I'm sorry, and the millennials were their kiddos. So the boomers and the Xers, and so the millennials were raised with great confidence. Um, I love to call them Bob the Builder generation because can we build it? Yes, we can. So they, they were raised with great optimism. They were raised with great attention. They were raised in many ways as a replacement for religion. Okay, drill down on that. Yeah, they Atlantic, were... Atlantic Monthly, uh, somebody was reviewing the movie, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. Mm -hmm. And they said, um, you know, the country that gives an Oscar to, to, to Forrest Gump, um, is a country that places sentimentality overall. And Europeans are prone to say that the United States is sentimental and, and really does believe that family it, it is overly sentimental about family. And hmm. um, to the point where, he, you know, he used that to say part of the reason, you know, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, which is a religious book, is so popular overall is because it, because of the sentimentality of family that can then wrap itself around um, an older religious motif. And uh, that was his observation 
of it. And I think he captures it pretty well. Think about how many movies, as I joked about earlier, how many Christmas movies, holiday movies are all about family. If you truly family, you discover the heart of what life's all about. Well, it used to be in religious circles, people would refer to that as idolatry, that you have placed your family before Almighty God. Some of us still do. But yeah, yeah, I would. Yeah. Uh, But today the family bears the entire burden of our, uh, for many people's deepest needs. And so the millennials have held that, which is why, and here's what's great. The, 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 the quarter life crisis. Yeah. I'm 25. And so Atlantic Monthly had a, had a cover story of a psychologist who said, when I'm seeing more and more of her 25 year old saying, I'm not happy and I don't know what to do. Whereas your generation told your professor, give us the notes. I need to succeed. Mm-hmm. The millennials parents had all those traditionalists going, come on, you, we're going from seven on the farm to two of you. You're our only hope, Obi-Wan Kenobi. We're betting everything on your success that you're going to carry the American dream and you're going to prove the great war was worth fighting. So you had better get your stuff all together. So the boomers rebel against all of those pressures and they tell their kids, you do whatever you want to do as long as you're happy. And they're sitting there at 25 going, now what? I'm not that happy all the time. What do I do? Well, have you told your parents? I couldn't tell my parents I'm not happy. It would destroy them. They've made so many sacrifices so I could be happy. Yeah. That's very interesting, you know, because I've, I've, I've given talks on that at our church and elsewhere that family, family can't be neglected, but when, you know, your children were not designed to be worshipped, they were designed to worship. And this generation doesn't always get that, that when you worship your children, you, you can mess them up as much as celebrities get messed up by the cult of celebrity, right? Like we were not designed to bear the weight of that kind of adoration and pressure. Carrie, I've never thought of it like that, but it truly is a celebrity status, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's like you, the world revolves around you. And with the death of God in our culture, um, two family institutions, you're just connecting some dots for me, really bear the weight of well, that. Well, all right, let me connect one more dot. Yeah, Let's please do. Let's talk Gen Z for just a moment. Yeah. So people ask me now all the time, so what's going on with Gen Z? And uh, so I'm talking to a publisher about updating the book to, and sorry, traditionalists, to move you to one chapter and then replace you with Gen Z because while they're just getting in university by my numbers, um, that's what everybody wants to hear about because it's new and hot and fresh. I think sure. one of the most interesting things about Gen Z comes out of the freshman study from UCLA. Every year, they thousands yeah. of schools pour a lot of money into that. Three years ago, 48% of, of Gen Z said that they were going to um, these cuspers, these transitional folks, millennial Gen Z, they're going to utilize counseling services at their university. Hmm. Is that a so high if you're number? At a university of 40,000 students, that means 20,000 people plan to use counseling services at the university. Man. This is why Time Magazine last year had a cover story on universities are doubling the size of their counseling departments and can't keep up because there's a lawsuit if you can't get somebody in and they commit suicide. They can't even do intake with that. 44% said they suffer from anxiety. 36% said they suffer from depression. Mm. Now, part of this is because we're now open to talking about mental illness and we weren't before. Part of this is what I would I think is the gluten-free effect. Gluten-free diets are really big on college campuses, especially with college women. And it's a bit faddish. It's actually not that healthy for you unless you really need to be gluten-free. You're actually healthier if you eat wheat. Um, but 
you know, it's kind of a fad. So I think some of the mental illness will be, oh, you're going to a counselor? Then maybe I feel sad too. Mm. But I think part of, Carrie, is what happens when, uh, when your kids are the center focus of your happiness and they have to carry the weight of all the adult expectations, not just to make it in life and to succeed at the Canadian or the American dream, but to, but to be happy enough that, that you give meaning to your parents' life and sacrifices. I think we're beginning to see some of, the, some of that bear fruit. Oh, that's a good insight. That's worth a rabbit worth chasing, you know, because I think it's it's marriage. You look at the ridiculous expectations we put on each other, even, you know, the perfect wedding, the Pinterest wedding, the Instagram wedding. And it's like, what, are we all celebrities? And then the pressure we put on our kids. And there's an argument. I heard Tim Keller years ago preach a message. I've never been able to track down the source where... He was quoting a, actually an atheistic Jewish writer who said, I miss God because God used to bear the weight of all of those expectations. And with God being out of our culture now, we've foisted them on each other, on our spouses, and I would argue on our children. And uh, we weren't designed to bear that weight. We weren't created to bear that weight. So this is, this is really fascinating. And you do see that. I mean, as a pastor of a local church, you know, being involved at Conexus, I can tell you anxiety, depression, that seems to be like this whole generational thing I said is an inexhaustible issue. We are now doing at least two series a year at our church where we intentionally go down the road of anxiety, depression, overwhelm, um, stress. It is just, it's an epidemic and it seems to be a bottomless pit. Well, in that book, Generational IQ, and actually the chapter on baby boomers, when that whole idea that psychology replaced theology. Mm, I refer to yeah. psychology as a bottomless pit because there's no therapy that ultimately answers the question of when am I done? Hmm. And so if, I, you know, if I'm spiritual but not religious, then I, I need to do mindfulness. That's a big thing in business now is mindfulness yeah, it is. training, and, it, and it's helpful. I find mindfulness, I, I find... Um, you know, the, uh, the, the um, um, St. John of the Cross and a contemplative prayer to be a very helpful and frankly relaxing thing to do. I do it during the day and I do it when I can't sleep, uh, when my mind's running too fast. So I find that helpful. Here's the problem. If I can't do mindfulness right, then what's wrong with my inner child? And so now I got to go do inner child work to figure out what my inner child's messed up because I can't do mindfulness right. But then when I get to my inner child, I find out that I had some parent parenting circumstances that weren't ideal. And I've got some genetic neuroscience makeup that, that gives me predispositions. And so now I got to go work on all of that. And when do I stop working? When, when, when does psychology say, you're enough, you're done, you're good? When hmm. am I no longer dysfunctional or broken? And how does theology answer that in your mind? You're going to make me cry. Huh? Theology says, Merry Christmas. You are broken. I see that you're broken. I see that there's no amount of mending that you can do. And therefore, I need to sin in completely tangible form myself so that you have absolute proof positive Christmas card present in your lap, in your face for all of eternity that 
I made you. I love you. I restore you. Ultimately, I will perfect you. And so you can chill a little bit. I don't want you to stop. You can't go lazy on me. Um, but you can't unbreak yourself. Um, Dave Matthews, the exer, yeah. um, jazz infused rock guy, he had a yeah, you know, he, he had a great song where he talked about broken stuff, and another one where he said, "Bartender, give me uh, whatever raised him from the dead after three days." Wow. I never thought that Dave Matthews had the answer to broken stuff buried in his sex-infused jazz lyrics. <laughs> yeah, I lo love Dave Matthews stuff, but that is very true and very profound. The gospel really is the answer. I believe that with my whole heart because, you know, lots of uh, self-introspection and all you're left with is yourself. It's not much of a prize. Now, psychology is a wonderful handmaiden. Hmm. Psychology, psychology gives great tools and great, great, yeah, psychology puts a tool belt on theology. I agree with that. Yeah, but, but it's a, it is a horrible master. It demands hmm. things from us that we can never come up with on our own. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Hayden, this is so good. So that's Gen Z, anxiety, depression on the rise. Uh, there was a big study done in 2018. Uh, this will air in 2019. And I, I know that it, it's, it was interesting because it was a study of all the generations and the, the most happy were the traditionalists and uh -huh. happiness decreased by meaningful percentages in every generation until you got to Gen Z. And Gen Z is the most technologically connected. I mean, YouTuber City and the whole deal, they're, they're on the most and they feel the least connected and the least happy. Now, some of that you might bet. be stage. Uh, I don't know. Teenage years are rarely fun years, but... <laughs> they, well, they are fun, but you know what I mean. For a small percentage of people, yeah. they're uh, wonderfully fun. In long-term unhelpful ways, but yes. <laughs> yes and for the rest yes, of us, exactly. for the rest of us, we tried to figure out how we were going to cope with reality for the rest of our lives. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's let's uh, take this further down the road. Um, sparks and tension points in the workplace. Then, as uh, like, I'll, I'll give you one. That's a very real issue on multiple teams I work with and talk to. Uh, yeah. Things as simple as grammar skills and written communication skills can be a flashpoint at work where the 40-something leader looks at the 23-year-old leader and goes, you can't spell. Um, what, what are some other flashpoints? Well, all I can say, Carrie, to that is LOL. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so uh, suddenly um, abbreviations began. I just did it today to a colleague older than me. I went BTW. And so there are certain things that have now made its way into informal, I know you well, inter, uh, uh, email speak. Um, but yes, uh, one of the things, the conference board, one of the uh, groups that, that supports and studies CEOs, they, they discovered that while millennials have a number of strengths in team skills and other things compared to other generations, um, critical reasoning and writing were two of their lowest that organizations mm -hmm. have, to, have to focus on with the millennials. I do a lot with professional service firms and the amount of time that managers spend reviewing working papers so that it is generational friendly to the expectations of whoever they're sending it to.
Why is that? Because I've seen that trying to help. Uh, and listen, again, remember, most of my teams over the years have been younger than me. I love it. I I, I would hire all day long in that demographic. So, And I want you to know, I love millennials millennial. too. And not just because mm-hmm. they're my kids. I love millennials because there's some wonderful things about them that go along with the irritating things about them. And yeah. I, I happen to be a real big fan of baby boomers. So I think there are wonderful things about baby boomers that go hand in hand with the irritating things and Xers. You all got oh, your irritation. What are you going to do too. with us? I know. Yeah. Um, so what, what about, because the grammar is one thing, but the critical thinking. Well, in the U.S., I, I, you know, there is a similar kind of thing. It is, this, it is smartphones and text messaging. Um, it makes a more informal speech. Millennials are much more informal. Ripped jeans, younger exes, mm-hmm. ripped jeans are, it's kind of inform- informal. This well, the would normally holes, be the more out. expensive. Yeah. Yeah. $230 to have somebody rip your jeans well for you. It's a, it's a price tag to pay. And so um, the full bodied hug. When I was at a junior high, middle school um, graduation party and three boys hugged my daughter in a full frontal hug. I'm like, seriously here, have you not been trained on appropriate hugging in the workplace? And, uh, you know, millennials went back to much more informality than formality. And part of that comes up in dress code and part of it comes up in word usage and language. Mm -hmm. Um, Why do I have to, why? There are a lot of really rich people who are wearing a hoodie to work. Why do you expect this? And the formality of language is the same thing. And so um, my, one of my, two of my sons were business majors and they had to wear um, a tie on Wednesdays. Every Wednesday they had to wear a tie. And they said, we need you to get used to what some of your organizations may demand. And so, um, and you're going to write, you're going to write like you would for a 55-year-old boss. It was smart for them to do that, to give people the ability to span that. Um, One more, here in the United States with no child left behind and everything was tested, rubrics became the key thing. Um, I have a template or a rubric for writing. And so my mother taught college freshmen and someone said, well, I need to have a thesis sentence, two supporting descriptions, and a cl- an including sentence. And she said, no, you covered everything in your paragraph with two sentences. But the rubric I was taught was a four-sentence minimum. She said, which is why you're wordy, because you keep saying things long after the point's been made. Hmm. And so the rubrics, you know, I say that, and all of a sudden millennials are like, well, that's exactly right. Took me a while to get used to quit writing as informally and to know what it looks like. And then to get out of rubric writing. And there just wasn't the same thing around grammar. Whole language is a good way to learn language. But that whole idea of let's learn reading and let's think in terms of paragraphs instead of let's think in terms of grammar. Most people don't know parts of a sentence and they don't know cursive. How is that related or is it related to critical thinking? Because I think I heard you say that earlier. And that's interesting because I think that's even, I mean, you know, go, go and buy Strunk and Whites or take a YouTube tutorial. You can figure out where the period and the comma goes and what an ampersand is. But, uh, you know, what about critical thinking? I mean, as, as a former lawyer, as somebody who went through law school, that is what completely reoriented my brain around critical thinking. And it was brutal at the time. But oh my goodness, decades later, I'm so grateful for that training but you said that seems to be a, a lacking characteristic in younger leaders. But it's something that comes out of the educational system because you can only emphasize so many things. You know, if you if you uh, if you focus on I don't know drinking more water, then you're probably going to focus less on flossing. 
So most mm. of us, until we develop habits, and the educational system heard from the boomers, we have got to have more team skills. So instead of what I heard in third grade, which was cover your answers with your elbow while you take the test, we began to do group projects. When I was growing up, doing a group project was called cheating. Today, it's called life skills. Yeah. Well, if you were, so when teamwork becomes the, the critical competency, critical reasoning, which tends to be a more independent activity, um, goes farther down the list. It's not that yeah, it's not right. thought, it's just is less prioritized. Right, because and the group so, compensates for individual thought. It does, it does, and it doesn't get measured as much. Um, not getting along with other people gets a higher, it, it gets more, it gets corrected more often than not thinking critically. And so Correct. not getting along with people is a higher priority. It gets more correction. A teacher will go, hey, we're in, in, our, in our class meeting next Tuesday. Let's write down your frustrations. They don't say write down the other people who have been lazy in their thinking and then we'll discuss what they could do to improve. Are there ways that employers are discovering to imbue that sense of critical thinking? You bet. Um, I was working with the megachurch yeah. and uh, they're exer leaders. And it's Xers around the world who bring this up more than anyone else, Carrie. Um, the Xers are probably the most frustrated with critical reasoning skills being lower. And that often comes hand in hand with independence. Um, mm. For example, here's what, and so I heard this in the largest bank in Costa Rica. I heard this in India, um, Chile. And it's almost always Xer managers, middle managers who have the most direct contact who say this. If I had time to go find them samples or templates, of something I need them to do, I would have already done it myself. Nobody gave me samples and templates. They just said, hey, Skippy, go take this. And I had to go figure it out. Why yeah. won't they go figure it out? And then you go on Glassdoor and you look at what millennials say about their manager and they'll say stuff like, oh, my boss is so helpful. I have a question and they give me ideas and guidance. My boss is a jerk. I ask for help. And they tell me to figure it out. <laughs> so I'm in a pharmace pharmaceutical sales company and the salespeople are like, this is exactly how it is. They're making me crazy. Uh, one, critical reasoning is one of our key competencies we're emphasizing. I said, well, great. You need to be really helpful 80% of the time. Hmm. And then 20% of the time, you need to clearly declare that we are working on critical reasoning skills. You got to figure this one all out yourself. There'll be no help, but you will evaluate their work before it is shown to be inadequate and it causes problems. So if you got a question, come in and see me. I may not be able to give you a half hour, but I can give you seven minutes to give you my thinking on how I'd approach it, give you some templates or some guidance. But in these four projects, you're completely on your own because we need to also grow critical thinking skills. And therefore, I'm going to give you no help. You can go ask other people. You can go check out the internet. You can go to a conference. But you, my friend, are on your own. Oh, wow. And okay. So, but we clearly declare it so people know how to interpret a different moray. Why are you being such a jerk to me? I, I, I hear millennials say that even in church staffs. My boss didn't have time for me. No, your boss believes that you ought to be able to figure this out on your own. And they'll roll their eyes and go, they've done this 10 times. I'll spend four hours figuring it out on my own. And they could give me three examples and it'll take me an hour. 
why would I waste that kind of time when I'm just guessing what they want? Hmm. And when you look at that, um, take video games. My kids would buy a video game. They'd save up. They'd pull their money. They'd do chores. They'd save their allowance. They'd take birthday gifts. Go buy a 60-buck video game. And then go pay $15 because I'm old. And they're old. They go pay $15 and buy the cheat code manual. 75 bucks to get a video game. And then they would complete it by the end of the day and say, I'm bored. Well, why did you buy the cheat code book? And they would stare at me like I had asked them, I don't know, to take off their own arm. Dad, <laughs> if there are cheat codes, you would be stupid not to use them. Yeah. Yeah, but you're bored the whole rest of the week. But they built in cheats when they designed the game. If they're there, you're like morally obligated to go find them. And so that's in essence what millennials are saying. Z's are saying to their boss, there are cheat codes, you know secrets on how to do this. Only really selfish, jerky people don't show friends the cheat codes. Right. You can see how those two, those two things of teamwork versus critical reasoning really pull against each other, even in the way different generations evaluate their managers. Yeah. And to that end, where there's tension. So let's talk about older bosses dealing with younger workers and then younger leaders you dealing with older leaders. What are some tips on managing tension in the workplace? Well, um, there are five steps. Great. The first one is just to acknowledge. I think this might be generational or to add to it from our earlier part of our conversation. I think this might be life stage. Hmm. I don't know. Why aren't they loyal? Well, because yeah. boomers loyal. Boomers had 13 jobs. They just had most of them in the first 10 years of their career. Right. And so once you get 45, you're at a stage in life, you got middle schoolers. Middle schoolers will not let you relocate. They'll take you to therapy in their 30s and go, you, you made me leave the greatest love of my life. <laughs> I, we had the best two weeks of my life together. You know how junior high love is. We had the best yeah. two weeks of my life. And uh, yeah, if you would have just given it three more weeks, dad, they would have been broken up, but you made them relocate. And so now they'll hate you forever. So many parents are like, rather than go through the grief, we'll just wait till they get out of school. Mm -hmm. We're in a stage of life where moving is not something we're into. And then we evaluate people who are in a stage of life where moving is something that you do in your 20s. And we're like, I don't know what's wrong with them. They're in the stage of life when people move around. Right. But we take it personal. And so that's one of the biggest things that go wrong. We don't acknowledge. I think this is life stage. I think this is generational. Okay, so that's number one. What's number two? Number two is appreciate the differences rather than just acknowledge them. So acknowledging is, hey, I looked online and it says you're like this and I'm like that. Mm -hmm. yeah. You can also say that with a bit of tension in your voice. Yeah, millennials. I don't get it all settled down until their 30s. I guess we're going to have to put up with it. Right. Or you could look at it a completely invigorating time of life where if you can adjust the way you do it and be good with emerging adults, you can pretty much have your pick of the best ones. Yeah. One of the questions I ask a lot of all staff, but particularly younger staff, because, um, you know, when you're reaching two or three decades down, it's, it's a long reach some days. I'm like, I'll, I'll just ask them, how can I help you win? Like, what do you need to succeed? How can I help you win? That question seems, it seems you could ask it every day. 
It is a wonderful question. And hey, what the research shows is the best managers for people in emerging adulthood that 18 to 28 years of age are the ones that allow them to listen out loud. In our mm-hmm. in the episode, the episode 69, you said, what was the biggest yeah. thing you learned right in the book? That uh, two text messages a month from somebody, not their parents, um, cuts the dropout rate from church in half during 18 to 23. Wow. And yeah. same thing, an adult, other than their parents, they can think out loud with, which means they're going to say to you, I don't know about this. I don't know. Here I am 24 in an organization and you hired me to make the, the marketing more socially media friendly and no one around here will do any of the things I ask them to do. I need podcasts. I need video pieces. Mm. I need nobody will do it. Well, yeah, we hired you to make it more so, more social friendly as long as nobody had to do any extra work. Right. I know. What am I supposed to do with that? And so if they can't talk out loud, they'll just go, yeah, it's fine. Yeah, winning. I guess if people could get to me more responsibly, what they really want to say is, I don't know if I want to work here anymore. Yeah. And then you can say, oh, I'm having flashbacks. I remember the second year I had to sit at the card table in the meetings because all the older people got to make all the decisions. And I got to sit there at the card table and, uh, um, and watch them. And then about seven years later, I got to sit at the big table, but I was asked not to say anything until I was called on. Yeah, I remember thinking to myself, I'm going someplace else. This is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And then they're like, oh, really? Well, why'd you stay? Well, I stayed because. And you begin to have an appreciation conversation rather than, a, oh, I heard millennials are not that loyal. Right. Okay, that's really good. What's number three? Number three, once we, once we appreciate each other, then we quit using generational or life stage differences as a bit of an insult or a lever. Mm. Carrie, I want you to know you're really good for an old guy. You even write chapters about staying relevant, but you're that, still freaking old there, man. That is never a compliment. Yeah, it really isn't. Or, or as one boomer said to me, I know my ex or my young exer employees mean it as a compliment when they say, oh, this is so much like working with my mom. <laughs> but it makes me crazy because I like to think of myself as young and relevant. And they make me think of myself as almost out to pasture. And they mean it as a compliment. Talking with you is so easy, so easy going. It's just like I'm at home. But that's once we appreciate those differences, we're like, oh, yeah, that would probably bug people. And so then we move into flexing. Once we appreciate, we can flex. Until we appreciate, we don't flex. Let me get religious on you, even for your business leaders, because we all know that um, one of the instructions in the Bible is to bear with one another. And flexing sounds like we're talking about bearing with. And there's two ways people say they bear with. I don't like you. I don't like Mm -hmm. much about you. But God says I have to love you. And so I'm going to bear with you. But if given, a, if given three magic wishes, all of them would be to change you because you're all messed up. Mm. That's not bearing with. That is gritting your teeth and putting up with another person and pasting a theological label on it. In the workplace, we do it with, you know what? It's all about collaboration, even if you have to collaborate with idiots. <laughs> yeah. So there's a secular as well as the theological version of that. Bearing with is where we say, you know what? We are never going to be alike. We are never going to see this the same way. So how do we flex the most so that people can get happy? Hmm. What can we do? As you said, 
what's your win? How do we make it a win? I don't know I can give that win to you without making it not a win for them. Oh, really? Yeah. One large organization I know tried out, they said, well, let's try um, Slack, an alternative for those who have not heard of it, uh, to uh, to Outlook. Or, (laughs) and they just decided, well, you can choose whatever you want. So everybody under 30 chose Slack and everybody over 30 chose Outlook. And now they have a communication disaster because they tried to overflex. Yeah. You can't give everybody all the wins they want. And then step four is leverage. See, flexing allows us to go solve the problems. Leveraging allows us to get beyond the problems. Leveraging is where we begin to make money. Leveraging is where we begin to get better. Leveraging is where we reach a whole new market, where we reach a whole new people that we haven't been able to reach if we're a nonprofit or a church. And so leveraging is where we say, hey, by the way, what would we have to do if we were going to be better in our social? Right. I don't know that we want to do it, but what would we have to do? So this is where you leverage the strengths of each generation. What do you bring? How can, how can we turn that into a win for everyone? And I'm not going to tell you, Carrie, unless I believe you like my strengths and are willing to put up with my weaknesses. Right. right. So unless you've made it possible for me to say, I know I'm not that good at this, but I can really help here. And you can say, well, that's great. We still need you to work on your writing, your, your, your writing, but we're really glad for this. And by the way, you have any ideas why our younger boomer salespeople aren't getting any traction with 25-year-old decision makers or gatekeepers to decision makers in the sales world? Yeah, because they write a page and a half email and nobody wants that anymore. They don't know how to write yeah. email that younger people respond to. Well, could you yeah. help me? Yeah, sure. I have to cut all of that out? Yes, you just wrote, this is not Moby Dick. Calm down. You put a brochure into your email. Well, I know you have to have seven points of differentiation. Now you just need to fr- build, build trust and be friendly. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's good. Anything else? You bet. Now, how, remember how we said in flexing that sometimes we can overflex? Yeah. Step five is, Step five doesn't apply all the time, but with the 12 generational sticking points in uh, the book, Sticking Points, about half of them you can flex and that solves them. Let's readjust our communication style. Let's readjust our expectations about loyalty. But some of them like meetings. We can't have four different meetings. Oh, wait, is it XR meeting today, this week, or is it Boomer meeting styles this week? You just kind of have to pick a middle ground, flex until... You hit a spot where you have to balance the wins, to use your words. You've got to balance the wins. And then once you balance the wins, you can go, all right, we resolve it. Gotcha. But resolution makes a whole lot more sense when it's, fine, I know that some of you boomers think being on our phones is rude. But if if we don't do an icebreaker again for a year, we promise we won't look at our phones. If you make us do another icebreaker when we have to identify a fruit most like our personality, we're pulling our phones right back out. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Okay, well, this is really good. Hayden, people are going to want to learn more. Tell us about your books and where they can find you online. What are the one or two books? Because you've written a bunch, but what are what are the one or two that can really zone in on this stuff? A couple of things, Carrie. The first one is, um, if you go to peopledrivenresults.com, I made a short video course, um, seven seven-minute videos on how do you cut your generational turnover in half? So, because everybody wants to know about millennials, four of them are on many of the things we've talked about here. 
How do you motivate? How do you do? How, what do you do with boredom? How do you do critical reasoning? So I go into more depth there. Um, so that's free. You can just, uh, anybody can get that. The um, sticking points is the book written for organizations in general, Generational IQ, um, Christianity isn't dying, Millennials aren't the problem in the future is bright, is written for uh, religious organizations. So um, uh, both of those. And then I do a podcast with a millennial called The Consultant and the Millennial. And we look at all kinds of organizational yeah. things and um, interview some people, but mainly um, just talk about what do you need to know at different stages in your career to be successful. Hayden, it's been so good to have you back. Thank you so much for pouring into leaders again today. Appreciate it. Hey, love those leaders. Well, if you enjoyed that, and I'm sure you did, you'll probably want more. So everything we talked about is in the show notes. You can head on over to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 254 or go to leadlikeneverbefore.com and just type in Hayden Shaw and you'll find the show notes uh, pretty quickly that way as well. Also, uh, remember, you've got an incredible opportunity to jump in on the Push Pay Summit for virtually half price. Yeah, okay, so it's gonna tell you it's $159 per person. But on checkout, if you use the coupon code CAREY, C-A-R-E-Y-N, CAREY-N, uh, that will bring your registration cost down to $89 per person. I would love to welcome you along with Patrick Lencioni, Nona Jones, Cheryl Batchelder, Clay Scroggins, Bobby Grunwald, and so many others. May 22nd, 23rd, we're going to get hyper-practical on really how to equip your church for the future at the PushPay Summit. Would love to have you there. So head on over to pushpay.com forward slash summit and use the coupon code CARRYN to make sure you get you and your entire team there before it's too late. Well, next week we are back with a fresh episode coming up. Well, we got, we got, a, I haven't done like a preview for a little while. So who, who do we have coming up? Well, in the near future, we have Nona Jones, the aforementioned Nona Jones. We also have Horst Schultze, founder of the Ritz-Carlton. Les McEwen is back. Sean Cannell of YouTube fame. Ken Coleman, uh, Margaret Feinberg, Michael Hyatt, and so many others. But next week, Oz Guinness. Oz Guinness is a name a lot of us know. And uh, yeah, we're going to talk about the decline of America, the current crisis, and how Christians can move forward in a post-Christian culture. Here's an excerpt. Take one difference. The American Revolution has a biblical anthropology at its heart. No, it's realism about the abuse of power and fallen nature. So you have checks and balances. In the Old Testament, kings, priests, and prophets. And the prophets were the social critics holding the priests and the kings' feet to the fire in terms of the covenant. Well, you can see James Madison coming from Witherspoon at Princeton with his notion of human beings fallen Ambition, checking ambition, separation of powers, checks and balances. The French Revolution was decisively, and the Chinese one too, utopian. Hmm. Utopian revolutions lead in each case to a reign of terror and anything but what its architects hope for. Subscribers, you get that absolutely free and you can subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, thank you to everybody who leaves ratings and reviews and sharing this with your friends. It means the world to me. Thank you so much for the comments and thank you for the encouragement. I'm really so grateful for you. Well, that does it for today. I can't wait until next time. And in the meantime, I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. 
Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.